As we ring in the new year, all eyes turn to Iowa. The countdown to the caucuses is on, and Donald Trump is still far and away the favorite. The question is, could anything shake up the race between now and caucus day? Plus, with just a few days to go before another anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we'll take a look at some of the Republicans who are still trying to rewrite history. Also today, my one-on-one -on -one conversation with Officer Harry Dunn, who defended the Capitol and our democracy on January 6th. And later, with so much to be concerned about in 2024, there are also so many reasons to be excited. At the top of my list is the Olympic Games in Paris. I'll introduce you to two Paralympians who were some of the most inspiring people I talked to all year. As we ring in 2024, I want to take just a moment to talk about what this next year has in store because we have a little more than two weeks left until the official kickoff of the presidential race. That is when Republican caucus goers in Iowa will cast the first votes of the 2024 election cycle. What happens in that state could have big implications for this country, and those implications may extend far beyond this upcoming year. For the candidates who've spent months barnstorming the state, Iowa usually represents the first real opportunity to break free of the pack, to propel their campaign forward and with a little luck, become the frontrunner for the nomination. At least that's been the tradition for the last four decades. Now this year, however, feels a little different. Donald Trump has led the field by such a wide margin for such a long time that the race seems less an open contest and more a foregone conclusion. But that being said, let's dig into what makes Iowa, Iowa. I did live there on and off for two years, including during the caucus in 2004 when John Kerry staged a massive comeback victory for one, caucus scores in the state usually expect to meet the candidates personally. It's typically not enough to just hear a speech and leave. They want to be courted. They also tend to be more politically committed and informed. While Republican caucus meetings do use anonymous ballots, voting in the caucus still takes a little more effort than simply pulling a lever in a voting booth at a time of their choosing. And then there's the makeup of the electorate itself. Given that almost half of likely Republican caucus goers in the state describe themselves as evangelicals, they're typically more religious, more socially conservative, and even more isolationist when it comes to foreign policy than the voters in other states. Consider the last several candidates who won the Iowa caucus. People like Governor Mike Huckabee in 2008, Senator Rick Santorum in 2012, and Senator Ted Cruz in 2016. All three of those candidates were more conservative underdogs who notched surprise victories in Iowa. Each of them also received the endorsement of Bob, Bob Vanderplatz, who's still considered the most influential evangelical leader in the state, who's now hoping to extend his winning streak into a fourth cycle. But rather than endorse Trump, Vanderplatz took a far riskier bet this time over, backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And while he predicted back in November that Iowa Republicans will rise up against Trump, that prediction hasn't exactly played out yet. Joining me now is my former boss, David Pluff, who is the campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential race, and Brian Fonenstiel, who is the chief politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. Okay, Brian. thank you both so much for being with me. Brian. I'm going to start with you. I mean, Trump, as I just outlined, has felt pretty inevitable for a long time. But there are, I outlined some of them, often things in Iowa that happen in the final weeks. And David knows this well, of course, also. So what are you seeing on the ground and what are you watching for over the next couple of weeks, since you're so close to this and a lot of people watching may not be? 
Well, I think one thing to really keep in mind about the Iowa caucuses is that people don't make up their mind until the very end. They're going, they're trying to meet these people face to face. They're going to see everyone maybe even a couple of times before they make up their minds. And so our polling has shown pretty consistently that, you know, about half of likely Republican caucus goers still have not made up their minds. And so even in the very final weeks, final days, there is room for things to shift. Even in the final hours, you talked about caucuses being different than a primary. People are going into a room with their neighbors. They're having conversations. There's a chance for people to make their case in the room on caucus night. And so, you know, there there is still, um, you know, Donald Trump is leading by by quite a bit here. But I think there's room for movement, and we're going to see what happens over these final weeks. Now, David, I mean, Iowa winners earn their victories typically the old-fashioned way. I mean, Barack Obama certainly did. I spent a lot of time on the ground, shook a lot of hands, answered lots and lots and lots of questions. Trump this year, though, on the other hand, has been swooping in on his jet. He's had large-scale rallies. I mean, he was the former president, I guess. Haley seems to be betting on New Hampshire. DeSantis needs to do well in Iowa to stay in the game. How do you expect this all to play out in terms of what's happening on the ground over the next couple of weeks? Well, Jen, it's also interesting, if you look back at 16, when Trump narrowly lost the cruise, by the way, where Trump said that caucuses were rigged, yeah. uh, something like four years later, you know, he not quite like this, but he wasn't hustling in all 99 counties. You know, he wasn't shaking hands before mm -hmm. events and afterwards. He probably could have beaten Cruz if he had run a better campaign. I think Cruz had a better Iowa operation. So we'll see. At the end of the day, Trump's got such a passionate base that perhaps the operation matters less. Perhaps the way he campaigns matters less. I think the thing that's interesting here is we could be in for a surprise where Trump's number on caucus day doesn't match the polls. But it is that battle for second. And it's fascinating because, you know, if polls are to believe Haley is gaining in New Hampshire, she ought to be able to do okay in South Carolina, her home state. So if she were somehow able to get in second place in Iowa uh, and everybody else dropped out, maybe Vivek won't drop out, but, you know, then she could get a clear shot at Trump and she'd still be the underdog. You know, if DeSantis were to come in second in Iowa, then his rationale will be, I've got to continue. Uh, and that'll clog up the anti-Trump lanes in New Hampshire and South Carolina. So so a lot depends on who comes in second and what kind of margin. And by the way, if Trump were to win by 40 points, that's a different story than perhaps, let's say he drops to 40 or 38 and somebody's able to get 18 or 20. Even though that's a big lead, you know, the expectations game will have been met. So, you know, we tend to get surprised in Iowa. So I'd be surprised if we don't have some surprises in store, you know, over the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, the expectations game, as David was just outlining, and Brown from covering this, you know well, is such a big part of this. I mean, are you seeing kind of momentum behind Haley that's being talked about on the national level and there's and is happening in New Hampshire, or you're seeing less of that in Iowa? Well, I think we definitely saw that in the fall, right? Our polling at the Register, the Des Moines Register, NBC News, Iowa poll showed her her gaining about 10 points going from, um, you know, the summer into October. And so we saw that really being the only movement in the race, right? Ron DeSantis was pretty stagnant. Donald Trump was still leading. Nikki Haley was the only person to show real movement in that poll. And so for for a while, it really seemed like there was a lot of energy behind her. She's gotten some big endorsements, including from Americans for Prosperity Action, mm -hmm. which is putting boots on the ground in Iowa, helping her door knock, helping her, you know, kind of put some, um, you know, bones into her operation. So we saw that. But but going here into the, the end of the year, we've seen less 
less movement in the polls, but there's still a lot of energy. You know, it really does feel like a two-person race in this kind of fight for second here between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And I think Iowans, too, tend to be pretty pragmatic as they think about their choices being first in the nation. They're looking to New Hampshire. They're looking to South Carolina to see how people are, are weighing the field in those later states. And they're saying, you know, maybe Nikki Haley has the best path beyond Iowa, and that is compelling to them. Oh, that would, that's the race for second is probably the most interesting thing to watch right now. But, Pluff, let me go back to just the Trump aspect of this, given he's so far ahead here. I mean, he's multiples of double digits ahead. But if he doesn't win by as much as 40 points or however much he's leading right now, could that impact him? I mean, how, how could that expectations impact him negatively? History suggests it, it will, Jen. So I think, uh, you know, we are not far away from the caucuses and, you know, his lead is is massive. So it wouldn't take much, again, for him to finish at 40, which, you know, would seem like to be a big number. And if somehow, you know, DeSantis or Haley can get to 18, 20, 22, um, you know, he'll look wounded, which is, you know, he didn't match expectations. Um, and then you head into New Hampshire, which, just like Iowa, has a deep capacity to surprise. Um, and so I do think that at the end of the day, um, the margin matters. Um, and the, probably the most important thing, though, is does this ever get down to a two-person race? You know, going back mm -hmm. to 16, Kasich, you know, Rubio, Cruz, they all hung in. And, you know, Trump, you know, for a while there was winning states, you know, 38, 40, 42. He wasn't getting 50. And, you know, it's clear that there's probably 55, depending on the state, maybe 58 percent of Republican primary voters open to somebody else. But it's got to get down to that two-person race. And, and Iowa is the first winnowing moment. Um, and so I think that uh, that's the important thing, though, as it relates to Trump. I mean, if he somehow finishes at 52, 55, 56, doesn't mean he doesn't get upset in New Hampshire. It makes it less likely. But if somehow this does narrow and, you know, history suggests it does, particularly Trump is not necessarily, you know, manically campaigning around the state, going to all 99 counties, you know, uh, doing tons of OTRs. I mean, he's doing what he likes to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the thing to watch uh, is, does this become a two-person race right after Iowa or at the latest after New Hampshire? And I think that margin in Iowa will, will help dictate that. I mean, DeSantis feels like he has the most to lose here. I mean, if he doesn't do well, What's his path? Or that seems to be the, the, my take on this. I want to ask you, Brianna, about the Des Moines Register poll, because it's long been the gold standard for the numbers and where candidates sit. And there were some numbers about where Republican caucus goers uh, more likely to support Trump stood that just stood out to me. I want to ask you about them. 42 percent say they are more likely to support him for claiming immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. 43 percent are more likely to support him for saying his enemies need to be rooted out like vermin, uh, just as a couple of examples. So my question to you is, is that because that's where they stand or because he's saying it and they like him and whatever it is he's saying? We've polled questions over and over again about Donald Trump and some of the um, controversial things he's said, some of the controversial stands he's taken. Um, we've polled about his legal issues and, you know, all of these different things. And, and it seems that no matter what question we ask, there's, um, you know, going to be a certain amount of Iowa Republicans who are with him through all of those things. And so I think we're seeing that again, where it's 
kind of a rally around the flag effect. You know, we're seeing it through um, through the indictments, where if he's being attacked, people, Republicans here in Iowa, tend to gravitate even more closely to him. And so, you know, it's been an interesting year in Iowa because it started out, you know, we would talk to Republican caucus goers, people who were attending events very early in the year. And there are a lot of people who would tell us and still do tell us that they want someone besides Donald Trump. They're interested in another option. And yet, we have seen the polling that he is only getting stronger here in Iowa, even despite all of these things that are coming his way. You know, he, he leads with every demographic group we tested in this last poll. And so to talk about um, all of the things that he's faced, the things that he's saying, his his support is only getting stronger here in Iowa. Brian Fonenstiel and David Pluff, lots to watch. You're both saying there could be surprises. I guess we'll see. Uh, thank you both so much for your time this afternoon. Coming up, we all remember what happened on January 6, 2021. But as we approach another anniversary of that day, the efforts to rewrite history continue. Plus, my conversation with Harry Dunn, one of the officers who guarded the Capitol that day. And later, you won't want to miss my conversation with two U.S. Paralympians ahead of Paris 2024. We're back after this. In just a few days, it will be the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We're in an act of unprecedented political violence. Hundreds of Donald Trump supporters violently stormed the Capitol in an attempt to halt the peaceful transfer of power. And in the immediate aftermath of that attack, the facts of what happened were not in question. Everyone knew what they saw. It was surreal. It was definitely a dark day in the history of America. Our nation still mourns the unacceptable violence an anarchy that took place in this Capitol last week. It's just an unprecedented event, nothing any of us have ever seen in our lifetime. We've got to prosecute these people and, and it, from my perspective, put them under the jail. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. January 6th was a disgrace. American citizens attacked their own government. They use terrorism to try to stop a specific piece of domestic business they did not like. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the vice president. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. But in the three years since, there has been a concerted effort to rewrite that history, to intentionally ignore, disregard, revise, again, what everyone saw with their own eyes. Word for Americans to know the truth. This has been fraught with an, an unbelievable amount of misinformation and untruths. And I think this, you know, when you see the footage yourself, it's going to give you an understanding of what was there um, and what occurred that day. Because we're, we're currently only, um, you know, depending upon really partisan descriptions of what happened. I let people make their own decisions. Look, we want the American people to draw their own conclusions. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against. And, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other, uh, you know, concerns and problems. They are going to take this and milk this for anything they could to try to be able to smear anyone who ever supported Donald Trump. But let me be clear.
There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. If you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol. Did I have all this evidence? I'm showing you a tip of this iceberg. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? These people were set up. It was an inside job. People should, quote, see for themselves. The thing is, we did see for ourselves. Everyone did. As we approach another anniversary of that day, none of this, none of it should be in question. A group of people motivated by the lies of the then-sitting president of the United States attacked the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep him in power. But for the coalition that supports Donald Trump, what happened on January 6th is apparently and unfortunately still up for debate. And as we enter the new year, that specter of political violence continues to hang over the country. Joining me next is someone who defended the Capitol on January 6th. My conversation with Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn is coming up after a short break. We'll be right back. January 6th was an attack on democracy by MAGA extremists who tried and failed to reverse the legitimate results of an election by force. But it was also an attack on the men and women who stood in their way. That includes the more than 2,000 duty-sworn officers of the Capitol Police, many of whom engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat while protecting the Capitol that day. They were assaulted with bats, clubs, pepper spray, even fire extinguishers and flagpoles. They were stabbed and stomped, crushed and pushed downstairs. Many suffered concussions. Some had cracked ribs. One lost an eye. And that's not to mention the psychological trauma that would haunt them for years to come. Among the brave officers at the Capitol that day was Harry Dunn, who first shared his story while testifying before the committee investigating January 6th, two years ago. Now he's out with a new book, Standing My Ground, a Capitol Police Officer's Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble After January 6th. I recently sat down with Officer Dunn to discuss his book, his job, and his life in the aftermath of the insurrection. Harry Dunn, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. Glad and congratulations be on being an author. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to ask, I mean, you're so candid about your level of fear, your level of trauma that you experienced on January 6th and in the weeks and months afterward. Yeah. Why did you decide to write the book and what do you want people to take away from it? You know, I been telling my story from day one. And one of the things I've always said is everybody has a story from that day. This is my story. I don't pretend to speak for the Capitol Police. I don't speak for individual officers, Americans. This is me. And it's important, especially in this day and age, so many people are trying to whitewash what happened, and mm -hmm. they want silence. And silence actually helps them win, them meaning the people who are trying to rewrite what happened. Um, and I can't let that happen. You know, everybody has a role and I believe this is part of my role, just by telling my story. Your job for all of the years you've been in it is to protect people of all parties, of all backgrounds, yeah. of all viewpoints. Yeah. Which I think is so important for people to understand. Uh, how has that been in the years since January 6th? It's challenging because, you know, everything has become so partisan and so divided. My job, just a job, is to be able to protect members of Congress who I agree with, who I don't agree with. It's not my job to agree with them as a police officer. It's my job to disagree or agree with them as an American citizen who has a vote at the ballot box. But to being able to distinguish between the two, uh, I think that's where I am now, that 
knowing that democracy, my job is to protect it and defend those individuals responsible for preserving it and keeping it. But as an American citizen, still being able to hold them accountable, uh, it's a delicate balance. You write that most of the insurrectionists didn't go inside because they were too busy fighting with us, as in you yeah. uh, and others and your colleagues. They weren't trying to run around us. They were trying to take our lives. They had the opportunity. Look how, how a number we were. If they wanted to go in, you had officers on the ground. Why not go in then? Mm -hmm. You got the officer on the ground. No, instead of going around him, they were beating that officer on the ground and attacking him. It wasn't just an obstacle. It was hate in their heart and vitriol that they had. They had the opportunity to go in. Some of them did, but some of them continued to attack officers while they were down. And, yeah, I can't explain that. We don't often reflect on how much worse things could have been, but you did an interesting job of, of reflecting on that in your book where you said that the fact that only one shot was fired speaks to the caliber of the officer's of, your, of the force, um, everything we saw was so bad and, yeah. and so horrific around that day. But it sounds like your view is it could have been worse. It could have been. And also, not even just the officers, but the individuals who were there, too. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving them any credit. Mm. But, you know, there were weapons pulled off of individuals. What if they just said, you know what, F this, I'm going to start shooting? Mm -hmm. What if we got to that point? Um, but the caliber, the, the, the bravery displayed and the professionalism mixed with the heroism of that day by those men and women of Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police was second to none, you know. No members were hurt, no staff was hurt. And not even that, they went back and they certified the election later that night. So that just speaks to the job that was done by those men and women. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I should note you drop a lot of F-bombs in the book. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know what moms, aunts, grandmas think of that. You know, but... it was, it's, it's funny. Uh, my dad said, what did you cut so much? Because like, that's not usually me, you know, but there's a lot of anger yeah. in there, and I wanted to be as candid as I could be. Well, that's yeah. why I wanted to ask you about it, yeah. because you also talk about withdrawing from your friends and family. You've been very open about um, your struggle with PTSD, which many people struggle with yeah. out there. Why is it so, so important for you to be sharing your story and sharing that part of your experience with people? Because somebody else is going through it. Just as simple as that. And I think it helps people know that I'm not the only, not me, that if somebody else reading this, like, I'm not the only one going through this. Or this big, strong police officer guy, you know, this six, can, if he's crying, it's okay to cry. You know, just... Ex Bring out the human in us. You know, not, we're not just robots. We are individuals that have feelings and emotions. And your emotions are valid. Your feelings are valid. One of the factors here that feels unfair that you and others have to navigate is that you have the leading Republican candidate for the nomination who is talking about glorifying insurrectionists, yeah. pardoning people who were involved in the events of that day. Yeah. How do you <clears throat> deal with that? Let me ask you a question. Does that say more about Donald Trump or more about the people who, this country, you know? There's an audience for him, mm -hmm. a large audience, not just a small demographic. And those people exist. Those people have a say, those people have a vote. And we can't discredit them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't understand it, but they exist. And we need to meet people where they are. I think 
one of the things that I've learned through all the people that I've met in life, when it, people want to be heard, people want to be seen, people want to be respected. And if people are turning to Donald Trump for that, we're failing somewhere else instead of meeting people where they are. It sounds and, like you're saying we got to leave a bridge. Yeah, you have to. It's some, what other choice do we have? There also sometimes is a, a discussion about this as if it's, ne it's happened and it's never going to happen again. So you are out there every day, uh, nearly every day, outside yeah. the Capitol. Yeah. You see what happens. You see the vitriol. Do you fear that this could happen again? Yeah, because Donald Trump doesn't think he did anything wrong. There have been, you know, thousands of arrests and hundreds of convictions. And maybe those people have learned their lesson. But um, when you have arguably the most powerful individual on the earth emboldening people to do what happened on January 6th, then yes, you can, you fear that it will happen again. Harry Dunn, congratulations on thank you. becoming an author. Thank you, thank no you. No one can ever take that away from you. <laughs> yes, Everyone can be proud, yeah. even with the F-bombs yeah. included. <laughs> I really appreciate you, you having the courage to tell your story thank and you. also to talk about your struggles. In I appreciate months it. And years since. Thank you so much. Harry Dunn's book, Standing My Ground, is now available wherever you purchase your books. Up next, an important conversation about the tireless work military care of military caregivers here in the United States. The wife of a military veteran who served in Iraq and Afghanistan will join me to share her family's personal story and talk about the challenges faced by caregivers across the country after this break. We'll be right back. As we look ahead to the new year, one of the focuses I have that many of you may share is to support organizations that do remarkable work and try to give back more myself. And one of the organizations that's really struck me over the years because of the impact of the work they do is the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. Senator Elizabeth Dole started the foundation after her husband, Senator Bob Dole, was hospitalized for 11 months due to service-related injuries. And she saw the challenges military caregivers faced and the lack of assistance available for them. The foundation's mission is to support and empower the caregivers that are often forgotten. And so for this New Year's show, I wanted to highlight the story of just one of the many remarkable caregivers. Jennifer Osten's husband, Will, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. A few years after Will returned from his second deployment, he was diagnosed with POTS, a blood circulation disorder and also a rare auto-inflammatory disease that doctors believe is linked to environmental toxins that Will was exposed to while serving in Afghanistan. Jen described her caregiver role as, quote, one of the most challenging roles that she's had the honor of fulfilling. And joining me now is Jennifer Osten. She's a caregiver and fellow at the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. It is such a pleasure um, to be here with you. I'm sorry. I just, I, Thank you You're very me. inspiring. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to ask you about your husband, Will, because he's a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, as I just outlined. He's a dad. Yes. Um, he's an avid reader, I understand. He's oh, a yes. baseball fan. My husband's oh, a baseball yes. fan, Go too. Tell us a little bit more about Will. So Will, um, he is a go-getter. When he, his condition often uh, renders him bedridden, but when he's up, he's going 100 miles per hour. He is advocating for others. He is diving into his girls' lives. Mm -hmm. He's the best husband and father, as present he, as he can be when he can be. 
And like you said, he's an avid reader. Reader, we have a library in our house full of history books. So <laughs> I love that big history buff yes. and baseball fan. Yes. And I know your responsibilities as a caregiver and other caregivers change day to day. And this yes. is something people don't always recognize. You're also raising twin 13-year-old girls, so yes. that alone is a full-time job. Yes. Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you face or how the responsibilities change day to day? Sure, so, um, you know, many people, when they think of wounded warriors, they think of illnesses that they might see and be able to, you know, understand. But for my husband and many others, they're invisible illnesses. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really tell what's going on from day to day until you kind of see for yourself. Um, and for him, his he has POTS and another condition called Bichette's that often mean that he has flare-ups that mm -hmm. keep him in bed all day. And this is not the type of, like, he sits up and we can go in and play games and watch TV. I mean, he's out. His he has brain fog, fatigue, joint pain, migraines, all sorts of issues. And so day to day, each morning when I wake up, I kind of assess, is he up today? Is he up? Is it going to be a good day? Or is he down? And, you know, we need to help him accordingly. So it's helping him with meals, bringing in food. My, my daughters do that a lot with me and for me, and they'll bring in um, food for their father and helping with medications. And really, um, there's not a cure. So it's not so much that we're working towards something, it's really just hoping that each day is a good one. Yeah, and you have, you're now a part of this community of caregivers. And it's a, it's a community that a lot of people don't understand because people often think of the veterans who return, um, but yeah. they don't always think about the caregivers. Right. What do you think is most misunderstood about some of the challenges that caregivers face? I think a lot of times, um, you know, our country is really great at getting behind veterans, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. But there's second and third order effects when they come back wounded or ill. And those fall down on their families. If they're married, it's their spouse, or maybe if they have children, the children are affected greatly by this. I think mental and financial um, repercussions are huge. I talk a lot about mental health. Um, I've had some really dark days as a caregiver, feeling very lonely and isolated, and knowing there's not necessarily an end in sight that, you know, it can feel overwhelming. And the same thing for my children. And they didn't sign up for this, although we're very proud of my husband's military service and have no regrets. Um, the, the consequences of the day-to-day -day and the toll it takes on us, it's just really hard for people to fathom until they've stepped inside our homes. One of the things reading about you that was surprising is you were at an event for the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, um, and it, they're incredibly inspiring. I've been to some of these events. And you heard the term military caregiver. And even as everything you've just described, you didn't think of yourself as one previously. But that right. seemed like it changed for you. That moment changed for you. It did. Yeah, it was an aha moment. I was at an event, and um, my, I think we had gone to just like a military fair of some sort with lots of vendors, and they said, hey, you know, you might want to come to this. Your husband is, is going to be medically retiring out of the military, and this might interest you. So I came. I heard a fellow um, caregiver speaking, and as she was describing her scenario, it hit me, and tears started streaming down my face. I was kind of embarrassed. I'm sitting there in the room with all these people crying, and I realized I'm a military caregiver, and I've been caring for my husband, and I thought nothing of it. It was my vows, right, for better or worse, but realized there was actually a whole demographic of people, 5.5 million out there that were also yeah, caregivers. A remarkable, remarkable number of people impacted. Yeah. Uh, we, um, the Elizabeth Dole Home Care Act just passed in yes. the House just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, how would this bill help caregivers? And, and what is missing from, it's obviously a big step forward, but what right. more 
people should people watching what more needs to be done well with this act what it helps with is that currently if someone is um they're ailing and they're aging. They, at a certain threshold, they have to go into the VA nursing homes. But what we want as caregivers, caregivers is for our veteran to be home with us as they age, because we know them best and we know exactly what they need. And but, but that takes resources, right? And so this bill allows them to age at home and for the caregivers to be able to continue to give them yeah. the best care possible. And what more for people watching who just are just learning about military caregivers, the large community? What is the one thing you wish that they would know? So what I always say to people is, A, know that they're out there, the, these people that care for veterans. There are so many of us. Oftentimes you can't spot them. So go look for them, find them, tell them that they're not alone. And then what I always say to people is, instead of saying, let me know if you need anything, be specific. Figure out what your strengths and your skill sets are and offer that to them, because that is what we need. That's incredible advice. Jennifer Osten, you're incredibly inspiring. I hope you have a happy holiday with Thank your you, family. You Thank you for being here today. Coming up, my conversation with two incredibly impressive Paralympic athletes. We'll talk about their personal stories and their plans for Paris 2024 and beyond. We're back after a quick break. As we look ahead to 2024, there are lots of things I'm worried about. The future of democracy, for one. I'm sure many of you are worried, too. But there are also lots of things I'm super excited about. And at the top of that list for me are the 2024 Olympics and Paralympics in Paris. You might not know this, but I am an Olympics super fan. The Paralympic Games kick off on August 28th, and recently I had the opportunity to sit down with two Paralympians to hear about how they overcome massive obstacles to become incredible athletes. Brad and Tatiana, thank you so much for spending some time with me on your busy day here in Washington. So, Brad, you're a three-time Paralympian, eight-time medalist, not to mention a new dad. Before you were a Paralympian, you had a distinguished naval career. You graduated from the Naval Academy. You served in Afghanistan. Uh, in fact, you won your first gold medal a year after your injury, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. What were you able to apply from your career in the Navy to your training and pursuing gold? The military does an excellent job of teaching you how to learn new skills. So as a, I was an EOD officer, an Explosive Ordnance Disposal Officer meaning I was a part of the bomb squad for the Navy. Mm -hmm. And as a part of that job, I have to do a lot of different things. I have to learn how to jump out of aircraft. I have to scuba dive. I have no to big learn... deal, just jumping out of aircraft. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, I have to learn how to do electronic circuits, chemistry, tactics, uh, maneuver warfare, uh, how metal detectors work, all these different skills. And so you go to all these different schools as a person in the military, and on day one of jump school or dive school, you know nothing about that particular thing. But by week one, week two, week three, you've achieved a level of mastery in that, and you approach it gradually with this sort of incremental loop. And so I knew, I know how to learn things. Tatiana, you were born in Russia. You spent the first six of your years of your life at an orphanage in St. Petersburg, where you faced some unique challenges, I think it's fair to say. Um, can you talk about how your life changed once you were adopted and moved to the United States to the degree you remember? Living in the orphanage for the first six years of my life, I didn't have any medical treatment. I didn't have a wheelchair available and my legs were atrophied behind my back because I didn't receive any medical treatment. Surgery for me was 21 days after I was born, so it was a miracle that I survived mm. until then. 
And the sixth year changed my life when my mom happened to walk through that door and she was purely on a work trip and coming to the U.S. She was just there for work and she walked into the orphanage. Did she know she wanted to adopt a child? No, wow. she didn't. She didn't. She just saw me and it was like faith that like just brought us together. Oh. I just like knew at that moment that that was going to be my mom and everything changed when I came to the US. I started school for the first time. I had about 15 surgeries because my legs were atrophied behind my back so I have to straighten them out so I could sit in a day chair like this and just do normal day activities and so she found a local para sports club called the Bennett Blazers and that changed my life forever. And it was the first time around eight years old that I could dream that it could become anything. When you're living in an orphanage, you're not taught to dream, you're just taught to survive. And so I wanted to become an Olympic athlete. And I say Olympic athlete because at the time, I didn't know the Paralympics existed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't on TV, it wasn't, we didn't have social media. Mm -hmm. And so it's been such an amazing journey. So Tatiana, you, many people call you arguably the world's best female wheelchair racer of all time. No pressure no at all. Pressure. Um, <laughs> how do you deal with the pressure though? And kind of the, there, there is a mental health challenge, I think, of being an elite athlete. I don't know, I'm not one, but I imagine. Um, how do you deal with that? And what are your coping mechanisms for dealing with the pressure? I really do believe that taking care of your mental health is um, absolutely first because your body can't respond if you're not mentally healthy. So you get tightness and um, you just can't move in your sport. You almost forget mm -hmm. how to do your sport mm -hmm. and you build up very high anxiety and it, you just like freeze. So I, I'm a really big advocate for that, especially being involved with sports for so long and all the changes that um, that has happened and the social media pressure, the the fans, um, you know, just all the comments sometimes you can receive. What are the misconceptions about the Paralympics and Paralympians out there that you think should be disputed or need to be disputed, I should say? I think we spend a lot of time explaining that we are not Olympians. Uh, I frequently am introduced a certain way and people will say, oh, it was great to watch you in the Olympics or, you know, I'm really proud to talk about my Olympian friend, Brad Snyder. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep, you know, try to very nicely say, mm. oh, I'm not an Olympian, I'm a Paralympian. Uh, we're also commonly confused with Special Olympians. And mm. these three sport movements are really incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. really valuable and play an important role in society, but they are different. And I think frequently Paralympians find themselves in that middle ground trying to explain to people how we're different. The London uh, Paralympic Games was a pivotal moment and brought a new public interest to para-sports in the UK. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you're hoping for as the Olympics and Paralympics come to the United States in 2028. So what was really unique about those London Games, especially competing in 2004, was the advertising that the London Olympics and Paralympics did. So their whole narrative was the OP, was the Olympics and Paralympics, and that's how they came in. That was so brilliant on their part, mm -hmm. um, and we outsold tickets um, at the London Games, mm -hmm. a million tickets we outsold the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So it says something that if people know about the Paralympics, mm -hmm. that they want to see mm -hmm. it. And I think what people are starting to find is that Paralympic athlete stories are incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, Tatiana and Brad, you're amazing role models, athletes, Paralympians. Thank, um, you. thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon.
My thanks to Tatiana McFadden and Brad Snyder for chatting with me and letting me let my Olympics fandom fly. Um, you can watch uh, Tatiana in Paris next year. I'm excited to do that. And since we taped that interview, Brad decided to sit out these upcoming Paralympic Games to spend more time with his wife, Sarah, and his young daughter, Rooney. We're wishing them all the best, and we're hoping he's back and ready to compete in Los Angeles in 2028. And we'll be right back after a quick break. That does it for me today. I want to wish everyone a very happy new year. Thank you for watching this year. 2023 was a wild one, but I think it's safe to say 2024 is going to be even crazier. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And a reminder that you can listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. And as we say goodbye on this New Year's show, a look at some of the names and faces of the incredible team who made what we do possible each and every week. They are brilliant, creative, and also great human beings, which matters. I could not be more grateful for every single one of them. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this year, and we'll see you next week.